Good morning, everybody. It is Pastor Paul, Tuesday morning, October 18th. Can you feel it getting cooler out there? We sure can, and it's going to keep heading that way this week. Welcome to our pastoral devotionals, Romans Rewind. It's great to be back in this chair behind this microphone with my trusty instrument, getting ready to hammer out the Word of God. And what we are doing this week is, is doing several sessions, set-asides, to look one more time at Romans chapter 13, the role of the Christian and the church in relationship to the government and politics. Recall that we spent two weeks on this passage, and this past Sunday, Pastor Scott preached the next passage in line, but I promised that we were going to circle back around and do some Q&A, take some questions from y'all, and you have been submitting questions, paul.gilbert at fouroakschurch.com, if there's something specific that you want us to address as it relates to how we are to interface our faith with political realities, the Word of God with government. And of course, Romans 13.1 is our capstone verse. Let me read it again for us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And I'm not going to preach the last two sermons. Um, I'll trust that you will go back and listen to those because I'm going to sort of assume all the things that we talked about there as I'm diving into answering some of your questions and teasing out different issues. And remember that, that we spent a good bit of time talking about um, the believer and what we are to do when the government forbids uh, what God commands. We've also talked about what do we do when the government commands what God forbids. Then we spent some time, of course, just talking about different ways biblically we are called to engage with the authorities around us. Now, I think most of the questions that y'all have have sort of voiced and have had in response to our sermon series through Romans 13 really relate to those issues where the scriptures are not clear. Or shall we say, maybe there are principles of scripture that are clear, um, but it's more an issue of strategy or more of an issue of wisdom or more of an issue of conscience as to how we are personally, individually to intersect with these things. And this was really, really brought to light during this pandemic, right? So one of the things that became a sort of a, a common tagline is that is this idea of obeying or disobeying whatever government uh, decrees were going on due to conscience. So in other words, people might say, um, I feel like my, I'm conscience bound to get this, this vaccine because of love for my neighbor. Others would say, I'm, I'm conscious bound to not get the vaccine because that seems like government control telling me um, what to put into my body. Some have said, I believe that um, wearing a mask violates my conscience. And others have said, I believe not wearing a mask violates my conscience because the, the government or the county authorities or, or the state or whomever is, is telling us to do so. And I think that this issue of conscience is a great place for us to camp out for this week. And what I want to do 
here today is to is to say a number of things, kind of bullet point style about the conscience. And then as we move through the week, trying to understand various issues as they relate to the conscience and what role the conscience should and should not play as it relates to our engagement with the government and political choices. So so I'm going to say several things. And again, we're time limited here. So there's going to be carryover. This is what we would call it going to be an epigenetical series this week, meaning that each lesson sort of builds upon the other. So let's 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 dig in. First of all, what do we mean by conscience? Okay. So you've seen the Disney movie, um, Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket, let conscience be your guide. Well, what, what do we mean by conscience? And, and here, this is this is the Paul Gilbert definition, and this is not a super tight um, theological definition per se, although I think it passes biblical muster. Here's how I would define the conscience. Conscience is the God-given innate ability and gift to discern right and wrong as measured against God's law. So it's a God-given innate ability. It's also a God-given innate gift that God has entrusted to us to be able to discern what is right and wrong. As me- let me let me bullet out four, five, six things here. We'll see how much time we have. And again, we're gonna then in subsequent days circle around and begin to apply this to various various political scenarios. So number one, we need to say everyone has a conscience. So the image, by virtue of the fact that we are made in the image of God, all of us have been bestowed with this innate ability to discern right and wrong in relationship to God. And if you need a couple of, of, of scriptural proof texts, okay, Romans 1, 19 through 20, let me read that, flipped over there in your Bible, which I know you have if you're here for the devotional. Paul says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What Paul's saying there is that everyone, and again, he's talking about unbelievers here, which all of us are are unbelievers and as we're, we're born into unbelief, that what is known about God, his invisible qualities and his attributes are made plain to us as we look out upon the world. Our conscience, see, bears witness and testifies to us that there, in fact, is a God. And this is possible because we all share the image of God. Now, right down the page, Romans 2, 14 through 16, listen to this idea that everyone has a conscience. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Even those who don't have the word of God, who don't know God personally or have saving faith, still have a conscience by virtue of being made in his image, by virtue of the fact that people do good things, that they they want to treat their fellow man with love and care and compassion, that they want to fulfill the creation mandate, to marry, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have a job. These are all 
all things that happen by virtue of the fact that we all have been given a conscience. Okay, so that, that's, that's bullet point number one. Bullet point number two, man and woman has the ability to greatly mar his or her conscience, right? So because we are not just born with a conscience, but because we are born into sin, listen to what Paul says we image bearers do in our, in our sinful selves, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there are times when our conscience convicts us of something, tells us that something is right or tells us that something is wrong, and we ignore it. We suppress that truth. We are marring our conscience. Paul describes this very well. Flip over to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Here's what Paul says. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars, here it is, whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In other words, it's possible to so suppress our conscience, to so violate our conscience, that our consciences become seared. They become deadened. They become hardened. This is what I think the writer of Hebrews says when he says, do not let your hearts grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In fact, it's it's possible to so sear your conscience that you may begin to, to lose the ability, okay, to, or, or lose is a strong term, the ability to discern right and wrong could become increasingly difficult. And so it is possible, even though everyone has been born with a conscience, um, it is possible, and it happens with all of us, that we, to some degree or another, mar our conscience, which brings us to bullet point number three. The, thus, the conscience by itself can never be an infallible guide. So, Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide. That's helpful in some respects, right? It teaches a moral lesson. Every time Pinocchio lies, his nose grows. He's not letting his conscience be his guide. But this is true even for believers, right? Even though we have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean our conscience can be an infallible guide for us. So I, growing up in the 80s and in college, this was what I would kind of term the God told me generation. This is when we were all on this hunt to discern the very specific individual Word of uh, will of God for our life over every single decision versus seeing that God's moral being God's moral law governs everything, and if we're obedient to that, we're being obedient to God. It was this idea that that we had to appeal um, to this individual conscience that God told me. Well, remember, people have done crazy, stupid thing things because they have claimed that God told them to do something, right? God told me to divorce my spouse. God told me to quit my job and not make provision for my family. This is why we want to say 
that ultimately it is, is, we're still under bullet point three here, it's the word of God, which is the absolute standard by which we can measure our conscience. And I think Paul gives us a roadmap for this in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Let's, Let's listen to what he says there. He says, oh, you know what? 2 Corinthians 10, 5, not 5, 10. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Here we go. Paul says, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, what, what does this mean? It means that there are certain things that our conscience may tell us to do or not do. But ultimately, we don't put our ultimate trust in our conscience. We put our ultimate trust in the Word of God. All right. So, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, I have a clear conscience, church in Corinth, for the way that I've conducted myself. But at the same time, I recognize that God is the Lord of the conscience. He is the ultimate truth teller, and ultimately, I have to appeal to him. So what Paul means is that I have a clear conscience. I'm living obediently to the word of God. As far as I know, according to God's word, according to the leading of his spirit, I'm being obedient unto him and my conscience. But yet, it's God's ultimate decision to judge our conscience, right? We can be deceived. We can um, be immature. We can fall short in our judgments. In fact, I think this is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8. You see, it's in 1 Corinthians 8 where Paul is discussing the issue of meat sacrifice to idols. And he is telling the believers there that in and of itself, meat sacrifice to idols is no big thing. It's just meat, okay, even though it hung out in a pagan temple for a while. But for some Christians there, they thought eating that meat was a sin, and for them to eat that meat would have violated their conscience. There were other Christians who said, you know what, um, I don't, my conscience isn't bound, and I can eat. Well, ultimately, for, for both groups of people, they need to understand, number one, just because someone thinks it's a sin doesn't mean it's a sin if the Word of God says differently. On the other hand, just because someone thinks something isn't a sin um, doesn't mean that it isn't if it's not exercised in faith, if it's not exercised with the right spirit, if we're not guided by the Holy Spirit. And so, this, so, so one of you had a question about how, how, does the, how does being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, how does this intersect with the conscience, okay? So, so look at Galatians. This will be our last verse, and then I'll point our way for where we're heading the next time. But Paul says, Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So it is possible as a Christian to, to have the Word of God, to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, but not walking in the empowering of the Holy Spirit, um, but instead walking in the flesh and end up making bad decisions. Even in the name of conscience, we may say, well, I've got a clear conscience about this, but, but, but all the while not being fully informed of the Word of God, 
all the while not being walking in step and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, so I say all of these things this morning to remind us that this is a tricky business, okay? And when we go off appealing to conscience for every single thing that we do and sort of taking that moral high ground, it's unassailable, right? When I say, well, I'm not going to violate my conscience. I'm Martin Luther here. I'm standing on the word of God. And to do no, to do elsewise, to do otherwise would be foolish, right? When in reality, it's not the word of God that's binding our conscience there. It's our preference. It's our sin. It's our selfishness. With Luther, his, he was appealing to his conscience, but his conscience was always bound with the word of God. They were asking him to deny justification by faith. And he was saying, I cannot deny it. It would violate my conscience because my conscience is bound by the word of God. And so this is a real cautionary tale for us as individualistic, rugged, individual Americans as we come and we sort of appeal to our individual conscience for whatever we will do or won't do, we need to be really careful. We need to be careful, one, that we are walking in the Spirit. Number two, that we are well-versed in the Word of God. Three, that we are walking in humility, that we are submitting our decisions to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are getting input, that we are working out our faith in fear and trembling. And it does, now, as we do that, that doesn't mean that we'll all come to the same decision, but we all will be answering with as much of a clear conscience as we can to our Lord for the decisions we make and don't make. And you may say, well, Pastor Paul, what, what does this mean then for um, these various decisions and decrees and such that we have um, been faced with over these last two years? How, how does this intersect with the conscience? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's where we're going tomorrow morning, Wednesday. I hope you join us in. Don't forget, if you've got questions about how this works and Pastor Paul, I'm wrestling with this political question, or I'm wrestling with that political question. Who do I vote for? Do I vote? Do I not? You know, all, all of those things, right? Um, we will try to tackle them here, but, but next time we'll start getting into the nitty gritty of some of these decisions as they relate to the conscience. Hope you will join us. Let me pray. Lord, you are Lord of our conscience and we appeal to you. We want to walk in your spirit we want to be obedient to your word. We want to take every thought captive. We want to be humble and in submission to you. So give us your grace to be able to do this. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. See you tomorrow.